The Koi Geek Pod returns for its third season. Who knew that we had this much to talk about? The thing is with Emma, I totally respect what she says and if she said that I had a stinking game, I probably did. You just have to accept it. Subscribe to The Koi Geek Pod on the Off The Ball app now. The F1 Pod on Off The Ball with Chicago Town Pizza. Formula One? Yeah, we go to town on it. All right, you're very welcome back to the F1 pod on Off The Ball. Myself, Shane Hannon with you. It's episode 12, weekly. I say weekly between now and the end of the season. We missed last week's episode. I was away off on holidays, gallivanting in Italy. So we missed last week, but uh, generally speaking, live on Wednesdays after race weekends between now and the end of the season in the F1 pod podcast feed and the Off The Ball daily podcast feed as well, wherever you get your podcasts. The F1 pod on Off The Ball is brought to you by Chicago Town Pizza, real takeout taste for less with Chicago Town. As always, keep your questions, comments and thoughts coming in to myself at ShaneHannon01 on Twitter. And uh, we have a man back for episode 12, uh, for a very special episode, I think we we should say as well. Uh, John Watson, former Formula One race driver and race winner, of course, five times as well. John, how are things? Good, Shane. I feel a bit strange flying solo for this particular edition, but there we are. Give me the best shot you got now. Return it in spades. Absolutely. We figured we'd do something slightly different. So it's kind of a, an Ask Me Anything, Formula One driver edition. I think a lot of people would would like to be sat in a room or sat face-to-face chatting to a, a Formula One driver, past or present, um, and and have a multitude of different questions. Are there, are there any questions, John, that you you get sick of being asked or that, that are asked of you quite often or that you're like, Jesus, it's, it's such a boring... It's like asking, I guess, an astronaut how to pee in space. Are there any questions you get sick of? Well, I suppose the, the big subject that always comes up about drivers of my generation was, well, thank God there wasn't any social media, no mobile phones, because if there had been, the Me Too generation would have been about two decades too late. <laughs> it would have been, a, it would, I guess it's the same in any sport, isn't it? You, you, the social media has kind of changed the game for for a lot of people and for drivers as well, I suppose, in terms of the celebrations. Is that is that something like the 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 celebrations I guess after races, have, would would they have changed? What what were they like back in your day? That's a question that I got in from a lot of people today. I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of mix in comments that I would have got sent from people and questions I would have liked to have asked you myself. So that was one of them that that cropped up in terms of race celebrations. Did you did you get the chance to to go wild, or was it the kind of industry where where you have to keep the head clear? Well, I think um, if I look back into my career, I remember in Japan, might have been 1977, and the Grand Prix finished. And I amongst, I didn't finish on the podium, so I wasn't a problem. But I think maybe James Hunt and one other, uh, we decided to leg it. And not James didn't do the podium. Uh, so we got under a helicopter, flew back to Tokyo to go out for a night, you know, a bit of uh, you know, relaxing and fun, whatever. And uh, I think from that point forward, Bernie Eccleston decided it had to be a mandatory requirement that a driver or the three drivers who had uh, what, taken the top three positions would have to go onto the podium and go through the process of the celebrations or the receiving your award then the celebrations because it's a very important part and for many people it's, in many ways it's a highlight of a Grand Prix to see your chosen hero up there maybe first second or third and you know you can join in by in a sense believing that you're there either on track or just simply watching on television so that I mean that was an example of how different Formula One was going back how many, 40, a minimum of 40-something, six years or something, to where we are today, where everything is so 
carefully orchestrated. I mean, you can't blow your nose without somebody, a PR person there to check your hanky hasn't got a bug in it or hasn't got something in it that you might make an inappropriate comment. It is just so overregulated. And the personalities of the drivers are now, to some degree, being subjugated by that level of, of control. And, you know, my generation of drivers, and certainly those went before me in the 60s and probably in the 50s, when they would have not flown immediately following a Grand Prix back to wherever their home was or wherever they were required to be. There would have been a blue-white party somewhere. And some of the antics that were, you know, drivers of the, those generations were getting up to, again, I mean, thankfully there was no social media. So the only people that were aware of it were those in the immediate vicinity and, I mean, it probably involved a fair amount of alcohol, but nothing more than that. And maybe there were one or two race fans of the female persuasion who felt that they wanted to join in and have a, a really good party with a group of guys that had done something in those days, which was particularly dangerous. And the cars at that time, I mean, your front engine Formula One car, a big engine directly ahead of you, a gearbox either alongside you or behind you, an exhaust pipe you know, coming down the side of the cockpit, Totally different kind of, and also the races were much longer. Mm. And you're talking about a minimum of a two-hour Grand Prix around Monte Carlo, and often went over you know, two and a half or three hours. Different style, different approach. Maybe the drivers of that era, the 50s and 60s, were more akin to maybe fighter pilots in the Second World War. They they drove each race as it came, and they didn't know what the future was going to hold. They didn't have any future planning. They believed that they would survive, but sadly, a lot of them didn't. But it was an era, I think, which was a lot more charismatic in some respects because you had a great deal more personalities. Every race driver was a character and a personality, whether it was Fangio, my hero, or Sterling Moss, or Ascari, or whomever. They were people that were actually more akin to the public at large, where now what we see now with Formula One is the drivers are so, as I use the word manicured, they're almost as if they're, on a, they're not allowed to do what they would like to do, certainly not at the scene of the of the event. Now, when they get away from the event and go back to their residence, then maybe they can be a little bit more free-thinking and, and free-wheeling in what they do. But if you're in a race, you don't see the kind of, of mis mischief that maybe earlier generations than my group or my group would have gotten up to. The, the, the Those podium moments that, that you referenced, I think it was maybe 20 podiums you had across the course of your, your Formula One career, that that first podium, and and I think I'm right in saying that was in in France in 1976, third place finish. Look, do you remember that as a particularly standout early moment in your F1 career, as as one that was particularly joyous? Well, it was an important race because uh, Penske had just introduced the PC4, and uh, when the car raced initially, it was I think in Sweden, and it didn't work. And one thing that Roger Penske is, he's a great pragmatist. So Roger walked up and down the pits and he had a look at a variety of different cars, but certainly one of the cars that was he was influenced by was the McLaren, the M23. And that had a, a longer wheelbase than the Penske. And it had a conventional front nose, whereas the nose on our car was more like a Ferrari, a big single wide wing. So Roger came back after Sweden and said, hey guys, this is what we're going to do. I want to have a, a, a bell housing, an extended bell housing, between the engine and the gearbox to extend the wheelbase, I want to go to a, a conventional front nose, front wings, and we took the car to Paul Ricard and it transformed the car. And from that point onwards, it was a very competitive car for the remainder of the season. Maybe Nurburgring 
was the one race where it didn't perform. But Nürburgring is a bit of a sort of a, a specialty circuit. And if you haven't raced there regularly, which Penske hadn't, the, the knowledge of Nürburgring was something that you gained just over experience. But other than that, there was a great car until the end of the year. Paul Ricard confirmed that with getting that first podium. Do you remember, John, your first time getting into a, a racing car or how that love or addiction started? It went, sorry, it went back. It goes back to my childhood when we were living in Belfast. And my father was, he, he was a weekend racer. And he had a little single-seater race car called a J.P. Vincent. Joe Potts was a, a great engineer from Scotland. And he made a single-seater not dissimilar to a Cooper of the time or a Keeft of the time. And in it was a Vincent V-twin uh, 1000cc motor. And the car was in the garage at home. And my father, my father said, get into it. Go on. I know, I know, I know. I, I don't know why. It, it, I've, I felt frightened. or I didn't. It felt alien. And I didn't do it. But then in the years following, and again with what my father was doing, I got then more attuned and more inclined to you know, want to take up a career or have a career, not just race in Ireland, but to step outside a small pond and go into a giant ocean of international motor racing. But the first time I actually sat in a race car, it's hard to say because it may have been somewhere in the 50s. Uh, I started racing in the in sort of middle-ish 1960s with my Austin Healy Sprite. And while that was a road car that was converted to a race car, uh, a proper race car may have been in the middle 60s when we bought a Brabham, a four, an ex-Formula 2 Brabham, to race in what we called at that time Irish Formula 2, which was based on a single-seater, a bit like Formula 2 in the day. But instead of using a Cosworth FDA engine, we used a, a Lotus twin-cam motor, which was a lot less expensive to run. And it gave great racing. Some of the best races I remember in my lifetime were racing at Kirkiston, Bishop's Court. I raced at Phoenix Park and Dunboyne, not in the single-seater, but um, there were about maybe a dozen really good competitive combinations of driver and car and some great racing i think a lot of people when they when and you see it happen i've seen it on um different television shows with current formula one drivers they're often asked questions like uh, you know how do you balance your, your racing with with getting your own just regular driving license like was that it was that a, a thing that that was on your agenda did did you were you getting your normal driving license like like the rest of us joe soaps at the same time as your burgeoning racing career or how did that work well, and I'll give you an example. I was in Barcelona at the weekend for one of the Fanatec GT World Challenge or Challenge Europe events. And there's a very competitive, a very impressive young race driver called Lorenzo Patrese, son of Ricardo Patrese. Lorenzo has just literally last week turned 18. He's been racing certainly with our series this year. And he was racing you know, previously in Italy in, uh, a year ago. Now, the reason his father comes with him is because he doesn't have a road license and consequently he can't rent a hire car. So he's 18 years old. He's now going to take his test in Italy. But when I was beginning my career, uh, at age 16, you could have a motorcycle license or a tricycle license. And a tricycle would be something like a BMW Zeta or a Messerschmitt, cars that were called bubble cars in the era. And because I'd ridden motorbikes for God knows how many years before, round our garden and you know, as a trail bike and I'd give it, you know, hammer it. 
all the way around the garden, occasionally fall off, get big burns up the inside of my thigh because I was wearing shorts and doing that sort of thing. The thought, well, our son is 16. We want him to have a life. And rather than getting a motorcycle license for the road, and because my father was in the motor business, uh, he acquired a BMW Isetta, which is a little three-wheeler bubble car. And that's what I began my road career in. And then when I reached 17, I took then my full license for a four-wheel vehicle, which I did in a little mini. And one of the one of the things you did when you're doing a driving test, one of these, yeah, I don't know, I don't want to insult driving test instructors or whatever, but you knew at some point he would have a newspaper or something in his hand and he went bosh on the dash. You had to break it. He wanted to see how your reactions were. Mm-hmm. Well, because I've got quite good peripheral vision, I was able to see this guy getting himself prepared. Before he even hit the dash, I hit the brakes. The bloke nearly went through the windscreen. <laughs> Amused me. You know, oh, oh, oh. Oh, oh. And he, he didn't know I'd anticipated it because I'd been able to see it. But he was impressed by the speed of the re- speed of reactions. And, and then from that point onwards, I was able to drive openly on the road, public roads, which I'd probably done before I had a license, living just outside Hollywood in County Down. I mean, I could drive up and down the road off the main road, the main Belfast-Bangor road, take my father up to get the papers on Sunday at the station, drive back down again, drive backwards and forwards. We lived by the sea, so we had a boat moored out in front of the house. And I would drive the my mother's car with a trailer on it, take the, the sort of little tender we had. And then I'd come back and I was giving it all this and sort of gravelly roads. It was great. I mean, I was oversteering like a, a Swedish rally driver, didn't have left foot braking in those days, but all part of the, the build up and the process to fulfilling the, the dream that I was able to do much later in life. Mm-hmm. Like those reaction times, you often see videos of current drivers, you know, catching two tennis balls dropped by one of their you know coaches uh, trying to test how quickly they can react. W- were there any ways in which you you would have practiced your reaction times back then, or was it just a case of get into the race and, and do it then? I think the only thing I would have done was I was a, a clean-living young guy. And I wasn't a drinker. I didn't smoke. I didn't go out at night and stay out, you know, you know burn the candle at both ends. I went to the gym. I was one of the first probably drivers, that, yeah, and certainly in Northern Ireland, even in Ireland, who went to a, a gym and, and spent time doing some training in the gym. And I think all those things were a contribution to you know, enabling me to do the job I was doing. But what you've got today is a very scientific approach. And I don't know whether it makes a big difference or not. But the thing that be, I think that the thing that always gave you the ability to react quickly was more an adrenaline rush, you know, a kick of adrenaline when something something happens and you have to react almost intuitively. Where what you're seeing of these these tests are it's very manufactured kind of test it's a very effective test and i'm sure it does help drivers sharpen up before they get into a car but in our day all we had was a big injection of adrenaline and off you went one question that that has come up with people uh, getting in touch with me john but also in my my own head as well is uh, that word nerves and adrenaline that you mentioned there like do you recall times in the car where where you were abundantly nervous or, or or is it the case that with with formula one drivers that just doesn't enter your head um, well, not so much in Formula One, but in 1970, I was, I was competing in the European Formula Two Championship. I had a major accident in France. A rear tyre had deflated, and it actually, the tyre pulled away from the bead of the rim. So it was a high speed accident, and I ended up with a fractured ankle, broken leg, and a badly broken arm. 
So when you're out of a car for a long time, following a major accident, your mind can start to play tricks. And the trick it plays is, can I get into the car? Can I drive that car again? Am I mentally damaged by that accident, which is a, in this case was a high-speed accident? And I actually went to the thing at Brands Hatch that about October 1970, and that might have been to do with uh, Formula Atlantic. And John Crosley had made a very nice car, which was basically a car that would have been used in America, uh, and but well, certainly went on to be used in America and Formula Atlantic. And John said, "Look, would you drive the car at this demo at Brands Hatch?" And I said. Yes, but when I was sitting in the car, in the pit lane, I'm going, am I doing the right thing? Can I do it? But as soon as the car was started, and those sensors and vibrations you get from the car, and your own focus and body sort of response to it, got into first gear, lifted the clutch, moved down the pit lane. By the time we got to the end of the pit lane, it was back at the races. So... The worst thing for you is, is thinking too much. And another example was, you know, Nicky Lada in 1976 had a, you know, a horrible accident at Nürburgring. Apart from the physical you know, injuries, you know, the burns, which were the very obvious things, he had a much more serious injury to his lungs because he had inhaled toxic gases from the residents and the bodywork and so on and so forth. But in the preparation to get Nicky ready, to come back, which is what he planned to do. He worked with a, an, an amazing guy called Billy Dungle. And I was very lucky to work with Billy later in the 80s when he joined McLaren, when Nicky came to the team. And part of the, 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 the rehabilitation for Nicky was, first, first of all, the physical rehabilitation. He had some minor fractures also, which um, there weren't things that would have precluded him from racing, but they had to recover. Obviously, the, the lung issue was something which was you know, concerning because of, you know, your, your lungs are somewhat important. And then the fact that the, 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 the burns on his, on his up around here on his forehead, but on his scalp. I'm not going into detail because I was with him when he got out of the car and it was not very pretty. He was severely burned on the top of his head. But Willie Dungle uh, you know, uh, put a, a few little tests together to see how Nicky might react in a moment of very extreme stress. And uh, he told me this is what he did. One of the things is Nikki's doing something under instruction. In the meantime, Willie's got a, a sheet of newspaper. He's all bundled it all up into a bowl. And by Nikki's not looking, he's littered. And he's called over, Nikki. And he threw the paper to him to see what Nikki's response and reaction would have been. Nothing. Nothing at all. What do you do that for? You know, and I'm not using the expletives. And so Willie knew that Nicky was 100% capable of getting into that car, which he did at Monza, and going out initially did his first session and was building up, getting accustomed to the feel of the car. Monza's a high-speed circuit, so you've got to get accustomed. Your your eye speed, distance, judgments, all those things have got to be retuned. By the time he got to the end of that first session, he was he was great. He did a, one of the most courageous things I think I've ever seen any athlete in any sport ever do, having come away from a life-threatening, very unpleasant accident and getting back in again, and undoubtedly in a, a fair degree of discomfort and pain, finished fourth in that Grand Prix. And when he took his helmet off, the bandages were swathed in blood. I mean, a, a level of courage 
above and beyond the call of duty, believe me. And I'll always remember that as one of the great moments in my friendship with Nicky. Um, and um, you know, I'm proud to say I call him a friend. That's incredible. Just the fact that he had that bravery, and 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 as you say, when you take the helmet off and you see the damage that that's been done during the race, even it's quite something. It that that's a topic that does come up, and it's one of the more morbid questions, I guess, John, that comes up when when people want to to ask cer- uh, certain questions of a Formula One driver or ex Formula One driver is is that of death in a race, and and I know that that that's something that would have happened at, at multiple times during your career, where uh, even in, in was it South Africa, nineteen seventy seven, Tom Price. Uh, was killed in that race and the track marshal uh, Jansen van Veren was killed in that race like when, when something like that happens and I know it happened at other points as well in your career is it hard to to let that go mentally for, for quite some time given you were involved in the in the race I'll give you another example 1973 the USA Grand Prix Watkins Glen I love that racetrack it's a fantastic circuit certainly for the cars of that era the early middle 70s cars and in one of the sessions on the Saturday, all of a sudden, everything went quiet. All the drivers that were on the track came in, with the exception of one, and that was Francois Sever. Now, at that point, I'd been in the pit lane, so I didn't see what had occurred, but it had been a particularly bad accident. I mean, I'd, again, not going into the detail of what happened to Sever, but it was extremely unpleasant. Those that went by and stopped, and one in particular was Julie Schechter, Julie Schechter had been, one might say, a wild child in his early Formula One career. When he went and saw the consequence of that accident, it was, a, it was just a day and night change in his philosophy and approach to motorsport dangers. So the circuits closed and waiting for the barriers had to be replaced. It was a long period of time. And then the circuit was reopened. And I was hanging around um, waiting for the, you know, well, the session's going to end in 20 more minutes anyway. And I was driving for Bernie Eccleston in the third Brabham. And Bernie said, John, what are you doing? I said, well, I understand Francois died. And I mean, just out of respect, you know, maybe I thought we'd just not go out. And Bernie said, John, get in that car now. You're a professional race driver. So was Francois Sever. Saber and you and everybody here, when you're driving that race car, you are doing something above and beyond anything in the world you want to do more. And he said, that, that's the risk. You know, Francois sadly lost his life. But don't let that stop. If you, if you can't deal with it, go home. And actually, that comment, that observation, a bit of philosophy from Bernie, helped me all the way through my racing career, almost to the point, and it's rather sad to say this, that you become immune to other tragedies. I mean, the, the one fatality that upset me a all, and there were a lot on our period, you mentioned Tom Price, and that was a particularly unpleasant accident as well. But in 1978, Ronnie Peterson had a major accident at the start of the Grand Prix. There were four drivers involved, Ricardo Patrese, Judy Schechter, James Hunt and Ronnie. I started directly behind Ronnie on the left-hand side of the grid, and he immediately went over to the right, and I went up alongside him. I'd cleared him. When I came round at the end of the first lap, you'd think it'd been an aircraft accident. I've never seen a racetrack in such a state with bits of cars, cars, drivers walking back. One of them was Derek Daly. Derek Daly, he was in the middle of that pack, and he sort of got involved in it. 
Um, and he was walking back. He was absolutely shocked. I've never seen a driver look so shocked as Derek. Well, he barely didn't know where he was. But Ronnie was one of those people that was a very special man. And while the accident had taken place just after the start, and eventually he was taken off to hospital, he was certainly alive at that point. He had severe leg injuries, some minor burning. But overnight, uh, he had a brain embolism, a blood clot, as a consequence of the, the, the fractures he had suffered. And he died in early hours of Sunday morning, or Monday morning. And I mean, honestly, I remember, I, I get goosebumps. I can feel it now, just being made aware that Ronnie had died. And it was probably the, that was the one emotional reaction of all the other fatalities that have occurred around my career that it upset me deeply. It really did, because Ronnie was one of those very special people and his loss was hugely missed. Is is there an air as well? It reminds me of, um, I think it was a Tom Wolfe book, The Right Stuff, talking about, uh, you know, writing about air, air, airline pilot or not airline pilots, but, but fighter pilots and, and Air Force pilots back in the 50s and 60s when safety wasn't the same. And anytime there was an accident, the attitude, the pervading attitude from from the rest of the pilots was, well, it won't happen to me. Was, was there was there something similar within the, the Formula One driver ranks that any bad accidents that occurred, you always maybe had to convince yourself, well, that, that happened to him, it will never happen to me. I think everybody was aware that, you know, if you have an accident in that generation, you could have a, a bad accident, you have a fatality. But you always felt that you, you did your preparations and you took into account circumstances on the racetrack the things that you couldn't control again in this era was car reliability and car failure and that was very much more uh, common than it would be today so you had to bear that in mind and i mean just again another thing just watching that race on sunday commentating in that race on sunday we had an onboard camera in the cockpit of i think it may have been uh it was either a ferrari or the Sky Tempest, uh, McLaren, and watching as the car came, uh, watching on board in the footwell as the car got near to turn one, suddenly I noticed the driver's left foot coming across and just dab, 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 dabbing the brake pedal before he gave it a full, uh, a full braking effort. And I went, look, look what he's doing. And this is something we used to do because it was quite a common thing uh, in a Formula One car. You get a, a thing called brake pad knockoff. So a little bit of distortion flexibility in the upright would cause the pistons to, to come away from the disc, which therefore meant when you put your foot on the brake, you'd have much bigger displacement to push before you, the, the, paid, the pads came in contact with the disc. So it's called brake knockoff. And here was this driver going, did three times. I said, look, look, look. I hadn't seen a driver do it. Other than I did it a lot when I was racing, but I'd never seen a driver doing it on television. And there we had it live in our broadcast, something I would say a unique image of what a driver does. And even in a contemporary car, and as good as the modern GT3 cars are, in the driver's brain, he just wants to be sure that when he comes down to the big, big brake at the end of the straight in Barcelona, when he hits the brake pedal, it's not going to go like that. It's going to go that. And he's going to have a strong pedal and he's going to have a good brake. And those are little things that, you used to do unconsciously because you wanted to make sure if you're going into Tarzan Herpin, for example, in Zandvoort, high speed straight, tight corner, you want to make sure 100% your brake pedal is going to be with you. 
Yeah, hundred percent. That's a that's that's incredible that even in contemporary cars, that sort of thing is is, is happening. It's amazing. Uh, John, we have to take a very very short break. We still have loads of questions here coming in, um, that that both I have and uh, viewers and listeners will have had as well. Uh, stick with us. It's the F One Pod on Off the Ball the, in the F One Pod podcast feed and the Off the Ball Daily podcast feed. Back with John Watson in just a second. Hello, Shane Hannan here, the host of the F1 pod on Off The Ball, which is available every Wednesday wherever you get your podcasts. Before we get into the episode proper, however, I did want to take a quick moment to mention our sponsors of the F1 pod, Chicago Town Pizza. And sure, when you're watching the Grand Prix action across the weekend, why not enjoy it with a pepperoni Chicago Town stuffed crust pizza? It's takeaway taste at home. It's the F1 pod from Off The Ball with thanks to Chicago Town Takeaway's unique fresh dough pizza. Yeah, we go to town on it. Now, without further ado... The F1 Pod. The F1 Pod on Off the Ball with Chicago Town Pizza. Formula One. Yeah, we go to town on it. Okay, you're very welcome back. It's episode 12 of the F1 Pod on Off the Ball. Shane Hannon here with you, and we still have John Watson, the former Formula One race driver and five time race winner as well, with us on the F1 Pod this week. It's an Ask Me Anything episode where we're throwing a few questions in the direction of John about his career. Uh, we're getting quite nostalgic talking about different things in John's career as well and, and other questions that people might have wanted to put uh, to to John. Um, John, did you, did you have any racing or, or even sporting heroes growing up? That's another question that seems to have cropped up a bit. I mean, principally my sporting heroes were in motor racing and the hero that I probably stand by even to this day would have been Juan Manuel Fangio because... In that era, from the early 50s, all the way through until he retired in 1958, he was, to me, the, the, the greatest Formula One driver and a very accomplished sports car driver, but primarily Formula One. And the reasons I say that is because he raced uh, in a very, very dangerous period. He won five world championships, which is remarkable. But he won them across four different manufacturers. So he won for Alfa Romeo, he won for Maserati, he won for Ferrari. And he won ultimately for Mercedes-Benz. And that marked him. Just, it was the manner in which he conducted himself. He had a, a style and a grace about his driving. He made it look as if he was going slow. And I think that's a very, very significant part about a, what a Grand Prix driver does. And maybe even to this day, and there's some drivers that probably make it look a lot quicker than it is. And some, may, some drivers drive in a manner where they don't make it look quick, but they are quick. Just check the, the stopwatch and you'll see how quick they're going. I mean, people like Alain Prost, for example, was a driver who drove in a, a very economic fashion, didn't use the car a great deal, used to upset the Williams team because they wanted the car to come back absolutely shagged out the way Nigel Mansell would have brought it back. Alan brought it back. All you had to do was give it an oily rag and it would have been good for another Grand Prix. But Alan had a style of driving which was very, very calm. The car did the work. The driver was there just as a part of the car. It wasn't a, an aggressive, forceful style of driving. And that's the kind of thing that you know, I would look to and respected. And I felt that's what Fangio certainly did. You know, more than it was two decades before Alan came along. The the, uh, the great story that I, I remember hearing before, uh, John, as well, we spoke about that, that uh, first podium you had in 1976 in France. Later that that season then in uh, Austria, I think it was, you get your first win. And and there was a, I think I'm right in saying, a bet with your team owner, Roger Penske, as well, that, that came to fruition because of that win. Yeah, I mean, at that time, I was a bit of a pathfinder because I had a beard. Shane, just like you. <laughs> and anyway, I'd grown a beard because I've, when I was racing in my teens, I thought I look a bit too young. 
So I, I had a little sort of goatee type beard. And then I grew a, a, you know more full beard. And at the point when I joined Penske, I had a beard. Uh, now, actually, I wanted to shave the thing off. I was fed up with it. But I was also aware that if I had done that at the point I'd signed for Roger, everybody said, oh, well, Roger's told me he's got to take his beard off. If you drive for Penske, you have to have this sort of Ivy League, clean-cut look. But at no point at any time in the discussions did Roger ever even mention the beard. But I, I raised it. I brought it up and said, listen, I know the beard's maybe not something that you're overly happy about, but um, here's, a, here's a, a target. First Grand Prix that we win, you win, I win. I promise you I will shave my beard. And we agreed on it. And it was a gentleman's agreement. There was nothing in writing. And we went about our business all the way through the back end of 75 and up until August 76. So the race finished. And there was a lot of irony about that particular Grand Prix because the year earlier, the talisman of the Penske team, Mark Donoghue, racing for Penske, had an accident and he was hit in the head by a catch fence pole and consequently a couple of days later passed away. Went back one year later and we win the race. I mean, the irony of it is almost impossible. And I know that there was a, a lot of emotion within the team prior to the race and you know, going back to the scene of losing your say, a, tals, a, ta, a talisman driver. And then when the race is finished, it's as if the page has been turned and there's a new chapter now in the history of Penske racing. They've won a world championship Grand Prix. They are still to this day the last USA-based owned team to win a world championship Grand Prix. And I don't see anything in the short term likely to change that other than something out of unforeseen uh, situations, you know, a wet, dry, wet, whatever race where everything is so unpredictable then maybe the Haas team might take victory, or now that Andretti's been confirmed as being an entrant in 25, maybe they'll be the next American USA-based whatever team to you now take that baton from the Penske team and take it forward. Uh, while we're on the subject of the US, we might as well touch on, I, I know a lot of uh, journalists and music fans were over in Las Vegas uh, during the week for this, I think it was a U2 concert at the Sphere, this new uh, concert location, crazy concert location, a lot of money has been put into it. Uh, but a lot of people were saying that the strip was was closed down because of preparation for the for the upcoming Las Vegas Grand Prix. And it kind of got me thinking about about your own experiences of uh, racing at Caesars Palace. Uh, what, what, was, what was that like? That must have been quite a quite a thrill and, and quite a, an iconic location to be racing. Well, the Caesars Palace is, of course, at the time we were going there, was the most recent built hotel. Fantastic hotel. And everything about it was, it's a bit like sort of Disney World for adults. Mm-hmm. You know, you go into the hotel, the first thing you notice, it's all artificially lit. There are no windows on the reception area, the ground floor area, because it's there for gambling. Mm-hmm. So therefore, the owners of all these hotels don't want the, the potential, you know, the punters coming in to spend their hard-earned income on you know, fruit machines, on cards and whatever else, roulette. They want them to sit down and go ka-ching, ka-ching <laughs> until they've spent everything. Or on the, some occasions, they want a lot of money. And we stayed in the hotel and as you're part of a big show in LA, sorry, in Las Vegas, we were given uh, high roller accommodation. The bedroom he had was unbelievable. I mean, the bedroom I had, the ceiling was about six meters high. There was a massive bath in the bedroom, mirrors everywhere. 
I can't imagine what you want a mirror in your bathroom for. Well, I've got a good idea. But anyway, it was everything was surreal. Massive swimming pools. I mean, the, the people around the pool, I mean, they're all young, upwardly mobile, having a time of their life, a weekend away, coming to the Grand Prix, a bit of gambling, whichever. Unbelievable. Just couldn't you couldn't make it up. The thing that was a disappointment was the racetrack. It was the uh, in the in the car park of Caesar's Palace. And it was sometimes people describe circuits like a paperclip. And it was sort of sinuous, like just in out, in out, in out. And you ran between concrete barriers. And actually, the first time you did, well, I did a couple of laps. So you had this sort of kind of speed effect because everything was so close. So it was coming to you. So where am I? You had to, first, you had to find your way around the racetrack and find the rhythm. And then eventually, your eyes and your senses adjusted to this particular layout. It wasn't a particularly great racetrack. It was, uh, well, I believe it there. It wasn't a great racetrack, but mm -hmm. it was a Grand Prix. And that's what we're there to do. We're there to go out and do our best. A Grand Prix to be won. Uh, it was the final Grand Prix of the year in both 81 and 82. Um, so, yeah, it was that sort of was. It was it was the end of term, if you wish, in the biggest grown-up adults playground in the world. <laughs> Incredible. I can't wait for the last also, I think uh, when we went there in 81, there, there were still aspects of Las Vegas, which you might call the Wild West. And there was a lot of action that went on around areas around the hotel. Not going to detail, but leave it to the, your viewers and you to imagine what kind of action was going on. Yeah, crazy. Something like that now. It's all cleaned up. It's all family friendly. You can take your kids there and... Nobody's going to be offended or anything. It just you just go and have a fantastic time. Yeah, and lose a lot of money in the process. Sometimes, sometimes don't have to lose money. Don't you have go to. and see the shows. Go and have some fantastic food. Go and do lots and lots of. There's so many things to see. I mean, there's there's the, the circus. I, I can't remember all the things that there are. It is a wonderful place to go. Why do people go there for bachelor weekends? I wonder why. <laughs> I know, and and that that interest certainly hasn't left. That it, it's a it's a crazy place for sure. And but but as you say, it's definitely cleaned up. Uh, Las Vegas. I'm looking forward to that Grand Prix. You meant you mentioned '81 there, John. Like that was the year I think. Uh, and you talk about the the developments in the car and, and how fast the cars were developing from '76 to '81. That's only five years. You had the um the new carbon fiber monocoque design on the on the McLaren car in '81. You have a, a terrible accident that year at, at Monza in the Italian Grand Prix. Um, and by all accounts. I mean, it looked like a terrible accident and one that in, in previous years might have been fatal, is that fair to say, but for the, the new designs on the car? Well, the one thing is for sure that the, the design of the chassis and the manufacture of the chassis, which was done uh, by John Barnard, he designed it. The car was manufactured, the chassis was manufactured actually in Salt Lake City in a company called Hercules Corporation. And they make the, the, the booster rockets for the space shuttle. So their technology was very much in carbon fiber. But the concept of the car was uh, build a Formula One car using the material in the manner in which that material is designed to be used. So you didn't just make a, a facsimile of an aluminium chassis Formula One car. You use the technology and you build that technology into a new, a new era of Formula One. And John Barnard did that successfully. I mean, like I look back on the accident and I think, well, you know, okay, it was exciting or spectacular, but. I just rode the curb on the edge of Lesmo 2 in the bottom of the car, did this on the curb, and it allowed it to rotate. Uh -huh. 
Mm. But you know what I was going to say. So went backwards into the barrier. The gearbox got wedged between the barriers and one of the, the support posts. So it, it levered the gearbox and then the engine away from the monocoque. And that's what then caused this. It was just a vapor, just the vapor of oil and vapor of fuel. But I was always sliding away from it. I didn't even know about it until that night when I got where I was staying on Sunday night. And I saw it on television. And I thought, oh, shit. Mm. And, look, and now I see it as a bigger accident than the accident I felt I was involved in. I stepped out of the car. I was unhurt. Walked away. Got a lift back to the pit. Said, sorry, guys. Bit of a mess, the back of the car. And you know, they were disappointed because you, you had more or less roped the tub off because it ripped the back of the the, the, the seat tank. It ripped that out. And, anyway, but what it did on the other hand, it served a great purpose because the Hercules Corporation saw what had happened and they then wanted to use that as a, a part of their sales promotional campaigns because in America, uh, the, the forces, particularly the militaries, both the Royal, or not the Royal Navy, the, the Navy, the Marines, their Air Force, where they were using helicopters in battlefields, they were vulnerable to ground fire. And a helicopter's only got a, normally had a thin sheet of aluminium to cover the, the frame of the helicopter. So they were vulnerable to ground attack. And they felt maybe there's something in this new material, carbon fiber, that we can incorporate A, it's light, B, it's much, much more available to be uh, deflect or to protect from ground fire. And that was then used, I understand, as a part of a, a sales pitch to in, help the design manufacture of these warbirds that were going into war zones to make them less vulnerable than they previously were. So there's a big byproduct from it. And I don't know whether it made money for Hercules Corporation or not, but I'm sure that they were successful in the sales pitch to the various uh, bodies that they had to talk to regarding up, upgrading, whether they just put it, whether they just you know attached a bit of carbon fiber would be more than attaching it, mm. or whether they started to make helicopters incorporating the very material. Anyway, it was a, a very positive result out of a bit of a bad accident. At least something good came came from such a terrible yeah. accident, as you say. Well, the good thing came. I was able to walk away. That was the first good thing. Mm. Uh, but the second good thing was that you know it did actually help save. I hope many many more lives in the future. Absolutely. Here, here. One of the questions, John, that keeps uh, coming in and came in for, uh, for from a few people was surrounding your your race day protocol. What you kind of did when you got up, how you you approached it, and and even your your lucky charms or, or race day superstitions. I guess you know a few weeks out from Halloween, maybe asking you about superstitions is <laughs> quite pertinent at the moment. But did you have anything kind of that you always did on race day or in the car? I mean, I think that I mean I don't call them superstitions. I I call them things that I was comfortable, my routine would have been a comfortable routine. And I mean, according to some of the team members, when I turned up on race day, it was a different John Watson than the day when I was there for Saturday or for Friday. I, don't, I didn't see the difference, but they said they saw a difference. But part of my routine would be that when it's time to get into your race suit, and remember we had a Sunday morning warm up in that era as well. So you're getting into your, your race suit about nine o'clock or 9.30, going out and doing a warm-up, 20 minutes warm-up, then back out, take your suit off, put your civvies back on again. And then, depending the, the time between that se that session finishing and the Grand Prix beginning, <clears throat> then you would have some kind of you know reload on fluids, 
food, whatever you're going to take on. Certainly in the 80s, when Willie Dungle was in McLaren, that was much more scientifically approached. And the food I was given to eat was based on my blood sugar count. And blood sugar is a very important element within our physiology. And Willie Dungle had, uh, he had a mathematical uh, figure. So I had a different ratio to, to Nikki had. So I was given certain foods and Nikki was a slightly different. The, the, the thing was more, I liked slightly sweeter things. He liked that things slightly less sweet. And that was just how he balanced the food out. And we maybe in those days had a, a pre-race, you know, quick sort of physio rub and just make sure all your muscles are warm and your flexibility is good and head turns and all these sort of things. We didn't have very many events to attend between those two sessions. And then the process I went through was when you take off your civvies, your day clothes, and then you put on your race clothes. So I would take my top off and then I put my fireproof underwear on top. Then I'd take my pants off and then pull my flameproof retards on. Then I'd put on my socks. Then I'd put on the suit itself. And then I'd probably leave it tied at my waist. Put on my then racing shoes. Always put my left one on first, then my right one. And that was my routine. Then you prepare your helmet. We didn't have people to prepare our helmet as these little children have today. <laughs> uh, so you put on a fresh visor, put a, a tear off on the visor, make sure that it's sealed as if it was wet to stop the rain running down between the visor and the tear off, whatever. Little jobs. And there were routine little jobs. And you did them, I did them in sequence because that's what I felt comfortable doing. And then the final stage of all this comfort, if you wish, was stepping into the car. And I always felt comfortable stepping in to the car from the right-hand side. So it was left leg in first, bring the next one in, and then slide down into the cockpit. Then the, the team would then do the belts up and off you went. So that it wasn't superstition per se. Some people might say, your egg and the pudding there. I call it just, I, this is what I felt comfortable doing. And I didn't particularly, you know, choose not, if I'd not done that, it wouldn't have made a difference, but it would have been maybe just less comfortable. So I preferred to do it the way I've just explained. Absolutely. Uh, we, we, we have so many questions we haven't got to that we'll come back to in a future episode, John. But if I had to ask you one last one uh, on this uh, week's edition of the F1 pod, uh, and it crops up every so often, either the best advice you ever received and i'm putting you on the spot here best advice you ever received or perhaps advice you would maybe give to your younger self looking back now with hindsight i guess well i think the the, the best advice i've maybe explained with that situation in watkins Glen, mm. because what that did was enable me as look i'm a racing driver it's not exactly the worst profession in the world there are many many brave young men and women uh, who have to go to war or people like firemen, even policemen who are doing jobs wherein there's you know, extreme physical uh, danger. I was doing this voluntarily and it's just, I don't know what to say. Just it, you took it as part of the job and just went about doing the job and hoped that you got through. Well, I don't think hope was the right word. You did what you thought, in the car was the right thing. And I, just one final example. In Canada in 83, uh, during a session, might have been, I'm not sure it was a qualifying session or not, but coming around the back of the circuit, 
suddenly a car was stopped on the side of the track and there's a course car by it. And that car was being recovered by that course car vehicle. And I was on a good lap and I didn't want to sacrifice that lap. And I went past that recovery vehicle and whatever at flat out speed. And it was a mistake. I shouldn't have done it because I didn't know whether that vehicle would turn in front of me or whatever. So I couldn't control that risk. The thing I'm maybe trying to say is try to control the risks that you're about to take. Make sure you've got an exit from that risk. Don't leave it with a, in a cul-de-sac. Uh, finally, Gilles Villeneuve made a tragic and fatal mistake in Zolder in 82 when he went round the outside of Jochen Mass. He shouldn't have done that. He should have backed off. He might have been upset about it. He could have gone and given Jochen a bollocking for blocking him on a lap, which was really not an important lap as it turned out. Never go into a cul-de-sac. You always need an exit. Make sure that whatever you do, there's a way out. Absolutely. Great advice to have for sure. Uh, John, it's been great getting your 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 nostalgic thoughts on your on your career and all answering all those questions. We will, as I said, and get back to to all the ones we haven't uh, got to this week. There's plenty more there. And we'll of course next week look back on the, the guitar Grand Prix. Uh, Daniel Ricardo, by the way. Air uh, guitar. Air guitar. Yeah, I know, I know. But it but Ricardo make it up, could you? You couldn't, you couldn't. Uh, at least at least we have a, a race winner that isn't Max Verstappen quite recently. So it, I know. I doubt we'll have another one in Qatar, but anyway. Possibly not. Possibly I think not. that's got Red Bull written over it like a piece of what I would call a Bogner Regis rock. Right. So you, you think... Oh, it, no, a, bit of, sorry, a bit of Black Rock rock. There you yes, go. Yes, there you a go. Black Rock rock. Yeah, keep it local. There, there's no... There's no uh, Liam Lawson keeps his Alfatori seat, as I say, with Daniel Ricciardo missing again. But the, anything you're looking out for in Qatar, John? Uh, well, I'm looking forward to Liam Lawson. I think he's done an excellent job. I'm delighted that he's had an opportunity. And I'm... An, so I... I, I two minds as to whether I want to see him in that seat next year or I'm happy to see Danny Ricardo back obviously Ricardo has been out now for four or so Grand Prix is going to be at this one also uh, the person that I'm really looking forward to seeing stepping forward yet again as he's done all season is Oscar Piastri I've been banging his drum I don't need to do it because there's enough other people out there doing the same thing I keep saying he is the real deal and he's, he's got a teammate uh, who obviously is a more established teammate you know, this is his fifth season or something, or is it not? And already Piastri's, you know, tweaking his tail. And, you know, they're two different people. I like the Piastri approach. I'm not a fan of the Norris approach in terms of the out-of-car stuff especially. But in the car, both are very effective. But I see as a longer-term prospect, Piastri's the guy that is going to get the job done. And I think there are a lot of teams in the pit lane who actually would like him in their car. Maybe not for a couple of years, but he will be on the books of the top three teams at the minute. Now, whether McLaren can make that top four teams on a consistent basis, we have to wait and see. So to me, he's the guy I'm keeping an eye on. 100%. Looking forward to seeing how that, that goes. The last time the race was in, in Qatar 2021, uh, the podium was Lewis Hamilton in first, Max Verstappen second, and Fernando Alonso in third. So we'll see how things go. John, we'll be back again next week. Thanks a million for your time, as always. Thank you very much. Good fun. Enjoyed it. Great stuff. That's the F1 pod and off the ball weekly between now, now and the end of the season after race weeks on Wednesdays in the F1 pod podcast feed and the off the ball daily podcast feed wherever you get your podcast. We'll be back next week. Good luck. The F1 pod on off the ball with Chicago Town Pizza. Formula One. Yeah, we go to town on it.